Welcome to 52 Episodes to Science Fiction Film Literacy. My name is Chris Garcia. Roll sound. I know what you're thinking. You think I'm going to talk all about steampunk and the aesthetics of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And that would be a good guess, but I'm not going to do that for a couple of different reasons. One is that there's just so much to the 1954 version by Disney, and the fact that it was directed by Richard Fleischer, who is the son, I believe, of Robert Fleischer, or maybe it's David Fleischer, I can't remember which, no. Well, the guy who made the Superman cartoons in the early, and the late 30s, early 40s, uh, we talked about the Mechanical Monsters earlier, and he'd gone to work for Disney, and he's directing this phenomenal film. It really is. And when you watch it, there's a lot to unpack. And you have to sort of look at it as a part of a continuum that, when I think about it, starts with the novel by Jules Verne and goes all the way up through, I think, 2003 when The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen was released. And to sort of grapple with this concept of Nemo, and that's really the key to this, the entire thing, Captain Nemo is the key. And you have to come to grips with a lot of perceptions from the time of Verne, the time of 1954, and then the modern era today, contemporary, I guess, and how it all sort of works against and with one another. The basic story is pretty simple. There are rumors that there's a sea monster, and the U.S. sends a... I believe it's the U.S. in the book as well. It's been so long since I've read it, and... I've read at least two different translations. This is... Vern in general, and 20,000 Leagues in specific, have been victims of terrible translations over the years. And the problem <laughs> is not so much that there are bad translators, but that Vern had a very particular style, and was writing not so much undercover, but was putting concepts and layering them in a way that it becomes difficult to unpack that all and still maintain an audience. And really there are two books that concern Nemo. The first one being 20,000 Leagues and the second one being The Mysterious Island. And The Mysterious Island is really important because it gives us the backstory of Nemo. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But 20,000 Leagues, the book, is really hugely important. It was one of the first science fiction novels that was adopted into education. I remember having to read it when I was in fourth grade. And I reread it again when I think it was in ninth grade. And that's when I realized what a bad translation this was, because it really didn't make much sense, a lot of the ways that things sort of played off each other. Even the title is mistranslated. In English, we've always called it 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. In French, the title more accurately tra uh, translates as 20,000 Leagues Under the Seas. And the original book is really an adventure visitation piece with a wonderful, smart through line. The film is... Similar, of course, but very different. And it, this isn't the first time people made this movie. Well, the first time they made this movie, but the story of 20,000 Leagues. Melier, I believe, shot some scenes from it. I don't think he ever made a full version. Silent version, I think from 1913. I talked about in uh, 52 Weeks to Science Fiction Film Literacy. As well-renowned for its early underwater footage... And it's a, neat, it's a neat story. The way they did things was very stiff, of course, because it's, you know, early film. 
but it worked. The French did a couple of versions, I believe one in the 1920s and one in the 1940s. I believe the one in the 40s was, may have actually even been a short. It may have just been a segment. I've never seen it. Uh, the Russians have done at least two versions that I know of and probably more. I think the Polish Film Institute did one. I believe there was at least two different animated versions. One of them might have been Czechoslovakian. It's widely adapted. And part of the reason for that is Jules Verne and the wide-scale adoption of his work. And I went to the Eaton Conference about hmm, probably 10 years ago now. Oh, I guess it would have been maybe 2009, 8, 9, somewhere in there. And it was a conference about Jules Verne, <coughs> where I learned to say his name properly, apparently. Uh, and was a lot of people complaining about the adaptations of his work. And one person actually said that any of the Eastern Bloc adaptations are going to be better because they had better translations early on. <coughs> Which makes a little bit of sense. If you're going to have better translations, you're going to get better result out of your work. That and the Eastern Bloc sensibilities, that they were, what they were trying to push at that point, uh, politically, would have fit more with the Vernian... Uh, the sort of idealism that he was pushing. The biggest and most important character of all in all the films of it is Nemo. Well, you could argue that it's the Nautilus. Because how the Nautilus is presented aesthetically is hugely important at setting what the film means. And of course it's a nuclear submarine and it's going under the waters and it's making huge long trips and blah 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 blah. In the 1954 version, what's really key is that design. Hugely important. Because it's abandoned the science. And Disney does that. They will set up a scientific, science fictional, some sort of concept. And as it goes, they realize that they need to ditch that and go for a purely aesthetic thing. The perfect example of that is Tomorrowland. Which had been more or less a hard science attraction up until about 1990s when things were outstripped. The realities were happening and the future that they'd been presenting didn't look like what we believe the future was. So they went back. They did the whole steampunking of Tomorrowland. And I've written about that a fair amount, uh, most notably for Tor.com, about seven, eight years ago. They recast the Nautilus in this sort of Victorian-influenced but Art Nouveau concept that really would not have worked. But it's a beautiful beast, and it makes sense that that would be confused with a sea monster. Now, going back to the book, books in this case, what we learn in the second book, The Mysterious Island, is that Nemo is the descendant of the Tipu Sultan, who most famously rose up against the British East India's company. And if you've ever been to the V&A and uh, the Victorian Albert Museum in London, they have Tipu's tiger, which is a tiger which attacks a British... Uh, a East India's company agent, I guess, <laughs> soldier, whatever. And that was sort of the attitude there. So he was a Muslim from Mysore, or Misore, I have no idea how it's pronounced. And yet he has always been portrayed by a white guy up until the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. When they had an Indian actor who, I know his last name is Shah, who is phenomenal, by the way. He was great in Monsoon Wedding as the father of the bride, I believe. Just spectacularly good. A really strong performance there. 
the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, he didn't have good material to work with. And yet there are a couple of cool scenes. He's presented as a serious badass. And that's what we're supposed to walk away from Nemo with, is this idea that he is the toughest son bitch in the room, no matter what room he's in. That he's the super scientist. And in the 1954 version, having James Mason play Nemo is absolutely perfect casting if we have no idea what the backstory of Nemo is. If we have no idea about the whole Tipu Sultan, about the, uh, the Muslim from Misore connection, if none of that exists, he is perfect. Because every line is delivered with calculation, with precision. Everything we expect from Nemo, from the books, he hits except for his identity. And that only ha we only learned that in The Mysterious Island. It's not in 20,000 Leagues. And he is sort of recasts the character of Nemo in this, I don't want to say less angry, but differently angry way. But it's calculated anger. And his responses are calculated. And that Nemo has informed everything that's come out. Every time Nemo appears in any scenario, whether it's a League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, whether it's in any of the steampunk pastiches that have been done over the past about 10 years, James Mason's Nemo is the emotional basis, the intellectual basis for those follow-ons, while Verne's Nemo may inform the scenario and the activity, the personification in James Mason's performance of it is what a lot of it attaches to. There are a lot of great performances in here Two that I really want to call out, Peter Laurie, who is amazing at everything, is phenomenal. And I think part of that is because he is playing the role both straight and twisted. There is subtextual stuff going on in his performance that I, I have to admit, I didn't see for a long time. But it's obviously there. And when you realize that he is sitting in for us, he is the audience's advocate. Far more than Aranax and any of the other characters. He is the one who is observing everything that's going on and is making the judgments. And I really think he is the focal point of nothing, but he is the observation point that we can see through. Now the other performance, of course, is Kirk Douglas, who is phenomenal as Ned Land. Can't be better. Uh, the cocky harpoonist who tangles with the giant squid. And it's great. He's amazing. He really pulled it off to the point where he kind of takes over the story to a degree. Because it's not supposed to be his story, it's supposed to be Nemo's, and it still is. 
but he does his damnedest to pull it to himself. And he's great. He really is. This is the Kirk Douglas that, for example, there's a really good example in my mind. He is the Kirk Douglas that is in the races in Spartacus and the fights, but not the, intera- the interpersonal interactions. He's all the sizzle and no steak. Though he does have a little bit of steak in this one. And he just looks the exact part. And his song, what is it, Whale of a Tail? Uh, he sings that song and it's wonderful. He's great. Aesthetically, of course, we have to talk about the steampunk movement. The visuals for this film, which, again, brilliantly shot. Cinematography, amazing. Art direction, incredible. And the only reason that uh, the art director couldn't win the... Oscar was that he wasn't a member of their union, the set director or whatever union, and he should have. I believe he was the same guy who did the first pass on the Haunted Mansion, which makes sense. There's there are a lot of sort of theoretical ties you can see in sort of imagery with the early drawings and so forth. This is textbook art direction influencing how a film is not only received, but portrayed. And when you look at the costuming from the early steampunk conventions, the first real steampunk convention in the U.S. was in Sunnyvale at the Domain Hotel, not the Dominion, as my wife and her friend Tofa would call it, the Domain. And when you looked around, what you were seeing was reflections of Verne, but more importantly, reflections of the 1954 film, because it's not just... Victorian. And steampunk gets criticized for being a Victorian fantasy, which a lot of it sort of is. But the elements of Art Nouveau, which again, I guess, is contemporary to to Victorianism. Don't cloud the, the subject. Stick with me. But the elements of Art Nouveau, particularly the French variety, which most Art Nouveau was, to be honest, all that came from this. And if you look at what we would consider steampunk idealists, ideal aesthetics, prior to 54, and there is a lot of it, actually. None of it is as unified in vision as it became, particularly in the 2009, 10, 11 frame, as you would see at steampunk conventions and so forth. All that was influenced by 1954 and 20,000 Leagues. It's a phenomenal film. You should really see it. It's Disney, but it's really, really good Disney. And it was apparently the first science fiction film shot in CinemaScope, which I imagine it made amazing use of. I've never seen it in this big theater, big screen. Uh, when the Century 21 reopens, God willing, and the creek don't rise, I hope they'll show it. Because on a big screen, this would be a masterpiece. On a small screen, it's still amazing. Okay, what's coming up? Next one is going to be Forbidden Planet. And I'm going to talk a little bit about music, about Star Trek, and about (laughs) Leslie Nielsen, of course. What's after that? Well, we're going to start to slowly edge towards the 60s. Of course, we're going to talk about one of my favorite films ever, Plan 9 from Outer Space, and we'll be talking about 3D. So stay tuned.